You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Burt's Bees. You know how some harsh skin products can feel like they're stripping your skin? Or on the flip side, how other products leave your skin feeling super greasy? If you've been in either boat before, you'll appreciate Burt's Bees' line of sensitive skincare. Their fragrance-free cleanser is loaded up with Goop-approved ingredients like cotton extract and aloe vera, and their gentle moisturizers seem to melt into your skin and leave it feeling softer. But I think people fall for Burt's Bees' sensitive skincare line because it's effective, and it can turn a mundane morning routine into a welcome kind of ritual. Also, talk about convenient. All you need to do is pop into your corner drugstore to find it. Easy. Learn more on burtsbees.com skincare. That's Burt's, B-U-R-T-S, bees.com slash skincare. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Hi, Elise Lunen here. I'm the Chief Content Officer at Goop and GP's other half here on the podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Zach Bush. Zach is a triple board certified physician with a background in internal medicine, endocrinology and metabolism, and hospice and palliative care. Today, Zach's work focuses on finding the root causes of modern diseases and exploring cutting edge ways to increase our health and longevity. He's involved in some very important grassroots projects. One is a documentary called Farmer's Footprint, which gets into the impact of chemical farming and charts a new way forward for regenerative agriculture. I met up with Zach to talk about pretty much everything, how the soil microbiome reflects what's happening in our bodies, the pervasive loneliness in our culture, and the way this manifests on planet Earth, and how we can all come together for healing. Mother Nature is so forgiving, and this is the silver lining of the story for me, is that her grace is much greater than our stupidity. Okay, time for today's chat. So thank you for being here. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I know you go wide in terms of what you talk about, but that you're at this point singularly, or not singularly, but maybe almost singularly focused on soil health, gut health, what this means for our microbiomes and its implications for our health in general. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say I've become singularly focused on planet health with the realization that the survival of our species is kind of hanging in the, in the balance right now. And we're 
teetering on the edge of real collapse of our own biology's capacity to live here on this blue planet of ours. And so I've got a bunch of different companies running in different sectors of health, energy, and ecology, but they have all found out that if you don't find that singular kind of fractal truth in the midst of whatever your corporate you know structure is or your goals, you're going to miss the boat and you're not going to be a sustainable company either. And so I'm just increasingly intrigued that whether I tackle health, energy, or ecology, I keep finding my way back to the soil. Mm. And so can you, I've heard you paint a pretty dire picture of what's happening. So is it one in three men will have cancer, one in two women? Is that accurate? Yeah. The numbers keep shifting, you know, uh, per publication, but we're bouncing around kind of between one in two males, certainly kind of hitting Mm -hmm. that cancer diagnosis and women were one in three until actually just in the last, you know, 24 weeks, we've even heard some changes in that. Maybe them already hitting one in two as well. So a stunning statistic that we're all certainly one degree of separation from cancer at this point. And also wide-reaching, you know, we talk a lot about autoimmune issues and other chronic diseases at Goop that primarily affect women and also reproductive health is, you think, sort of a smoking gun in terms of, or I guess not the smoking gun, but... Certainly the symptom, right? Yeah, yeah. The symptom. So it's like this kind of rampant symptom going on. Interestingly, if we look across the spectrum of what systems of the body are getting injured the fastest in our current environmental toxicity, the neurologic system seems to be the first. And so we see this affect children with autism obviously hitting, you know, recently one in 36 children formally diagnosed, many undiagnosed, obviously. We have grave concerns that uh, we're currently on trajectory to hit one in three children with autism spectrum disorder by 2035, just 16 years out. Mm. And so in my clinic where I'm seeing a lot of those children, it's such a devastating situation, not just for the child, but for the entire family that's now, you know, somebody's quitting their job. You've got people trying to find some sort of sustainable healthcare situation for these kids. Uh, you're trying to find the right resources, the right diagnos- diagnoses, as well as therapists that can help this child move from highly neurologically damaged towards some sort of functionality. And for some of them, really moving back to a high state of functionality with real genius coming through. But the amount of effort put forth is truly extraordinary. You know, some estimates are in anywhere from one and a half million to many millions of dollars a year in management that we're losing to productivity and cost of care for these children. So you put that together with one in three children in the United States, we, we bankrupt our country with a single disorder. Forget about all the cancer, the depression, the, everything else. That one condition would, would cripple our, our nation very quickly. So we do teeter in this kind of balance point, not just of health, but of real financial, you know, solvency as a nation because of our healthcare cost. If you look at the rest of the neurologic journey past childhood, and certainly attention deficit has become rampant. Some one in six to one in ten kids thought to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Then we get into the anxiety and major depression in the teen years. Young girls in particular really struck with the uh, generalized anxiety disorders and panic attack right now. Males tend to trend a little bit more to the kind of withdrawal, major depression mode than the anxiety patterns, but I see both in, in teen kids in my clinic all the time. And then you move past that, and by the time you're in your 20s and 30s, you're having real organic problems with sleep, 
metabolism, your ability to burn calories, turn fuel into uh, functional neurologic fuel or muscle fuel, and you're starting to get central fat storage in the liver, and you're getting prediabetes and cardiovascular disease and rest. And so this really slippery slope seems to start in the brain and move through. And about midway through that journey, you see the reproductive problems. Girls tend to show up around kind of 13, 14, just because they have menarche, so they get diagnosed a little earlier. The males tend to go for a decade or two unrecognized that they have really low sperm levels or other forms of infertility. A stunning statistic that's recently been revealed is that as a whole, the population of men over the last generations, over the last 22 years, we've seen a half, a halving of the sperm counts in the entire population. So to lose 50% of our you know, sperm production in just one generation is a stunning look at why many of us think we're kind of looking at 60 to 70 years maximum left for our species. We can't reproduce anymore. You fast forward 20, 30 years. That's terrifying. So are you an optimist? Are you at what sort of, can you take us through what you think is going on? Is there a singular root cause? Is it more widespread? And then how, how do we get back? Yeah, I am a bit of a pathologic optimist and it comes down to a little bit of just the raw science here is that if you, if it was just autism that was ailing us and it was this disease that to this day, if you ask the geneticists or child development scientists, anything else, they have no idea where this is coming from, seems to be coming out of the woodwork. If that was our only problem and we were as confused as we currently are scientifically, I would not have much optimism and say we're speeding towards this this ticket. You pick just reproduct, reproductive failure. I'd be terrified. But bizarrely, the good news is it's actually cancer, heart disease, autoimmune disease, neurologic diseases mood disorders, all of them went berserk at the exact same time in history. They all had this big uptick starting in the early 1990s and then really accelerating by 2002 to 2005. And now we're just on this vertical climb by the late teens of our, our millennium here. And so that trajectory of all of these systems going down at once suggests something really reassuring, actually, which is we must have one root cause to what we did. Uh, we must have put something literally in the water that could cause such a, a diversity of diseases and syndromes in such a short period of time in such a heterogeneous population because it's not just the U.S., which is known as this melting pot of genetics where we have people from all over the world coming and uh, you know, mixing their genomes and everything else. You can look to New Zealand, Australia, South America, Africa, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, China, all of them are now showing, while they're five or ten years behind the U.S., are showing the same progression of chronic disease. Mm. This singularity of disease phenomenon means that we should be able to turn our attention quickly to say what happened between 1988 and 2002 to change everything. And? <laughs> <laughs> punchline. Um, so the punchline here is up for debate still, but to my knowledge, no other science group has done as, as much work as we have to really try to correlate the times in history that these events happened and the chemicals that entered our food chain and water systems during that time. The single largest contributor to the chemical kind of destruction of our food chain is a chemical called glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in the famous weed killer Roundup. Roundup came on the market in around 1974, 
was really to market to the farm community initially, used heavily on fence lines and along dirt roads to clear ditches, all that. It kills pretty much every plant it touches. Everything from kind of the grasses all the way to the broadleaf plants, what we consider a non-selective herbicide. It kills any plant you put it on. And so the farmers started using it, and then it went to uh, consumers in the 1980s uh, with the big Roundup commercials, Super Bowl and all this, and the guys would walk out of their, their suburban, you know, kind of a uh, dramatic soundtrack, uh, marching out of their garage with this backpack with two pistol grip sprayers, and they'd shoot down five or six dandelions in their driveway without having to bend over, and they'd holster their pistols and walk back in with this emblazoned Roundup on the back of their backpack, that became one of the most successful commercials in history because it ticked all of the right boxes for the male brain, which is, I can get my chores done quick so I can watch football. I can look cool because I'm wearing pistols. <laughs> I don't have to bend over because that's a pain in the neck. And I hate weeding anyways. And so, you know, it's just like tick, tick, tick. I can be macho and do my honeydew list. And three days later, I'll walk out and all the weeds will be dead. And that's awesome. Well, of course, much different than the farmer, the homeowner has no discretion over how much Roundup they spray. If they spray $3 a Roundup down the driveway, it doesn't matter. The farmer has to be super careful because their bottom line depends on their inputs into their land, and so they tend to be much more conservative to spraying historically. Now we have Roundup being sprayed down every driveway in suburban America, and it ends up in our water system. And the nightmare of this chemical is that it's in a family of molecules called organophosphates, It's a synthetic molecule made by human labs. It's uh, an amino acid, which is one of the building blocks for human proteins. And it takes glycine, that amino acid, and tags a couple of chemical groups on either side and turns it into this water-soluble toxin. Well, in hindsight, perhaps, should have been foresight, creating a water-soluble toxin that would go into our soils and water systems and everything else is a profoundly bad idea on a planet that's 70% water. Mm -hmm. 70% of our surface area is water, 70% of our vegetables are water, 70% of our bodies are water, and here we go, enter this toxin. And now, sure enough, you fast forward 30 years later, and we're spraying 5 billion pounds of this chemical worldwide, came off patent from Monsanto, the famous chemical company, to be now made by every chemical company in America, and the vast majority of it worldwide is actually made in China and sold on the international market for pennies on the dollar. And so we have this molecule now just being made in mass from chemical companies all over the world and poured into our waterways. This has spelled you know, disaster for topsoil, first of all. It kills what we call the microbiome, which is bacteria, fungi, and this kind of diverse ecosystem of hundreds of thousands of species of of bacteria, parasites, singular cells, organisms, and millions, five million species of fungi, followed by probably in tens of millions, if not billions, of species of, of viruses all being affected by this chemical now. And so this huge microbiome that is really the foundation of how life happens, I don't care if you're an earthworm, a dog, or a human, you rely on the microbiome for the nutrient delivery in your body. And what our lab has been working on is to understand the communication network between the bacteria, the fungi, and the human cells. Mm. And it turns out that that microbiome regulates your own genome. It determines which human you make from the genes that, that you were handed by your mom and dad today. And bizarrely, there's over 2 million versions of you that you could make today, depending on the information you're receiving from the environment. And unfortunately, now what's happening is while we're passing on the same genes that we've passed on for thousands of years, they're building human bodies that cannot survive normal mechanisms of life. 
So let me just try and make sure I understand that. You're not only ad adulterating sort of the basic core DNA This is that goes beyond sort of the, the epigenetics of it and the way that the environment interacts with us to express our genes. This is like at its core, we're modifying what it means to be human. Precisely. Yeah, that's a really good sentence. We are at the core modifying what it is to be human. That, that's an extremely apropos statement because we've had this age-old adage that we are what we eat. And that was a philosophy of like, well, if you eat crap food, then you'll feel like crap. But what we're finding is literally what you are, genetically what you're building today as a body, does change based on what you're consuming today. This science actually is a, is a next generation after our understanding of epigenetics. So epigenetics was our understanding that came out of the decoding of the human genome. The human genome was actually a super disappointing project. So 1991, 92, six different teams set out to decode the entire genome, which is pretty, pretty bold because there's a lot of DNA in every single cell. It's about six feet of DNA, which represents you know, billions and billions of base pairs of these nucleotides. We did not have supercomputers in the early 90s that were going to be able to do this, so we thought it was going to be a 20-year project because we thought we were going to have to find some 200,000, 250,000 different genes because we knew we had that many proteins that were coming from those genes. So as we started to decode it, it was one of these un unusual projects where it actually gets done ahead of time, and we suddenly decoded the human genome at 20,000 genes. A couple other projects came in around 25,000 genes at the most. In the end, we find out it is probably perhaps even just a, a touch under 20,000 genes that, that exist in the human genome. That was a dismally low number because we'd already decoded the fruit fly, which has 13,000 genes. Mm. And we had already decoded the flea, which has 30,000 genes. So you actually sit somewhere between a flea and a, and, a, and a fruit fly as to your complexity genetically. That didn't seem... To, to fit the complexity and beauty of the human capacity, the, the mental capacity, our ability to change and transform environments around us, like the sheer ingenuity that comes out of our species. And so we had to invent a new model of how genes work. And that's where epigenetics came from. The understanding of epigenetics was, wow, the environment can actually somehow program a gene to make more than one thing. And so those 20,000 genes go on to make a quarter million different proteins depending on what the gene is told to do. Mm -hmm. And so no longer was our understanding that you actually are your mother's child or your father's child and you come together with you know these 23 gene parts from mom, 23 from dad, and you put it together, you got these 46 chromosomes, and the 46 chromosomes would become you and your program from birth, and we know exactly what you're going to look like not true anymore. And we find out that you're very plastic, meaning you can be transformed and changed. The body that you build today can look much different. And while that might sound very far out, all of you have some experience with this. You've been to a high school reunion or something like that where you haven't seen anybody in 10 years. And you look at one of those people and you're like, what? You're Tommy? Like, I thought you were the fat kid. And it's like this ripped dude who's like right. got it all going on all of a sudden. you're like, he literally built himself a new body by changing his environment radically. And so all of you have witnessed the ability to do this or people who have done this radically in their lives. I see it all the time in my cancer patients or other people that are faced with, you know, really severe life-threatening disease. They'll suddenly change everything in their life. And a year later, they walk in your clinic and you literally will walk right past them in the, in the lobby, not even knowing it's the same person because they're nearly unrecognizable. They've built a new body. And so that just gets me super excited on a lot of levels of 
okay, we got ourselves to this collapse of human health through some singular events that we did to our food chain, to our water system, which now contaminates not just our soil and groundwater, but some 75% of the air breathed and tested, some 75% of the rainfall. So we've really changed our environment, which has produced the humanity that we see around us, which one in three adults now in America with overweight or obesity, we've got one in four with diabetes, we have an amazing one in two with major depression incidents in their lifetime. So mm. just this incredible chronic disease didn't exist. In the 1960s, we see the entire population from cradle to grave with about 4% carrying a chronic d- disease diagnosis. The leading causes of death at the time were things like endemic infection, but even before that was trauma. People would fall off their tractor or they'd get hit by a car. Nobody was wearing seatbelts, you know. There was a different sense of public safety at the time, and so the causes of death were far more likely to be traumatic than something like an autoimmune disease or things like this. We actually didn't see autoimmune disease really picking up. It's existed for hundreds of years. Rheumatoid arthritis is described back you know, to the very beginnings of medicine, but now to see it go really epidemic, it took the 1970s starting to see an uptick, 1980s faster than suddenly 1990s. By 98, it was clear we had a serious problem with autoimmune disease. Right. And um, a lot of chronic diseases I know can come with age, but so many of these don't, right? I mean, I have many friends with MS, RA, Hashimoto's. It's kind of strange when someone doesn't have a diagnosis. It's actually getting really strange because now if we move from 1960s with 4% of the entire population with a chronic disease, and now we'll say, let's just look at our children. 46% have a chronic disease diagnosed. So nearly one in two children in the United States have a chronic disorder. That can be asthma, severe food allergies, environmental allergies, attention deficit, autism, major depression, organic sleep disorders, precocious puberty. You know, it just goes on down the list. So we've got almost one in two children now in the United States with a chronic disease. You're right. It's getting really intense to find, you know, what is, to even define what is a uh, a healthy population in children under the age of 12 now. In an incredible study that we did at the University of Virginia, you know, probably almost 18 years ago now, and so it's, I'm terrified to even know what it would be if we repeated it now, but even at the time, we looked at 110 uh, young girls at age 12 in a middle school environment, and of those, 25% already had antibodies to their thyroid gland. And so we see this one in four girls by age 12 with an autoimmune, you know, destruction of their thyroid gland. And now you fast forward and those numbers are undoubtedly uh, significantly higher at this point. And so we've known for a long time and just haven't known how to deal with the truth at the public health level. You've never heard the CDC come out and say, we have a vertical epidemic in autoimmune disease in children. We have a near vertical course over the last 10 years in brain tumors in children. And yet... CDC and the federal control over the microwave radiation that we see through cell phones and everything else keeps suppressing that data. And the way that they do it is they say, if we look across the entire population from child to geriatrics, we haven't quite yet hit a statistical significant increase in brain tumors. But if you just look at it, children under the age of 12, it was an, it was a non-diagnosis 30 years. You know, no kid got brain tumors when and then. Right. Now we've got you know a significant number of kids getting it. And so they keep diluting the data by not looking at the most vulnerable population, which of course is the children who were born into the environment, right? Right at the moment of conception now, our womb is being 
inundated with microwave radiation from Wi-Fi routers to the Bluetooth stuff to the way in which we drive through toll roads now, you know, it's just like, or go through an airport. You, know, you cannot escape these, you know, potent EMF exposures. And you couple that then with an uncoupling of the cooperative relationship of human cells through the chemical exposure. And that's what my lab has been working on is to understand what's the relationship of Roundup and these common chemicals in our food to our vulnerability to things like EMF and things like that. And the, the answer is kind of profound in that the you know, chemical of glyphosate we've been told for 30, 40 years is safe for humans. And the reason they made up that story of safety was because they had proven that glyphosate blocks an enzyme pathway that makes some very specific amino acids, which are the building blocks for proteins, in soil, bacteria, plants. Humans don't have that pathway of enzymes, and so Monsanto and the rest of the chemical companies kept saying, eh, how could it possibly affect a human? We don't have the enzymes that the chemical is targeting. But as all of you already know by pharmaceutical world commercials that you see all the time, the target may be specific, but all of the off-target effects, i.e. the side effects, can be ridiculous when you look at any commercial on TV right now. Mm-hmm. It's everything from erectile dysfunction to death happening from your blood pressure pill or your statin drug or whatever it is, like, or your antidepressant, you know, all of them having these devastating off-target effects. And so what the, our EPA and regulatory bodies probably failed to do for public health was to ask, what are the off-target things for this chemical Roundup or glyphosate doing? And so we've been working on those kind of direct effects on human cells. And we do this through studying small intestine, colon, kidney cells, liver cells, and the rest, and putting tiny amounts of the chemical on there. Roundup, by the way, is even more toxic than this, the generic glyphosate. So glyphosate's the active ingredient, but Roundup play, adds 16 other ingredients in there that make it even more toxic to human cells. The toxicity is interesting because it doesn't follow through a typical carcinogen pathway. So I think this is, again, how they, they kind of skated through without suspicion for cancer for decades until finally, a couple of years ago, World Health Organization finally says this is a probable carcinogen. Of course, they've been backpedaling ever since out of all the political pressure that's unfolded, but it doesn't have a typical pathway to, towards cancer in our, in our classical mindset of what cancer is, which is a genetic injury. turns out the cancer at its core is not, doesn't start with a genetic injury. It starts with a disconnect or loneliness of, this, of an isolated cell. Hmm. And that, unfortunately, is the exact mechanism by which Roundup or glyphosate acts on a human cell population is it immediately cuts all of the fiber optic cables that communicate from one cell to the next and create isolated lonely cells. What an amazing metaphor for what is wrong on every level in humanity. You just nailed it. It took me four years of studying this and watching it in clinic to reverse this syndrome before I figured out that you're exactly right. What we see under the microscope of lonely cells, and then as you create a healing event, you get those cells back together, you see the exact same thing happen at the macro level of the behavior of the individual, which is as the cells fall apart, as your gut lining collapses and turns into a leaky sieve and you get severe leaky gut, which is immediately followed by leaky brain, what's happened in the microscope is you've literally lost your self-identity at the organism level. And you see the same thing happen. That's where suddenly you wake up depressed with this hopelessness that you can't even figure out why. Nothing's really changed in your macro environment. Your parents are there, you've got spouse, whatever your situation. And yet you have this like sense of eroding 
capacity, purpose, like what am I doing, brain fog, all the rest, and you end up with these really incapacitating senses of insecurity, uh, vulnerability, and paranoia. Yeah. And you put the whole thing back together, and you see somebody emerge. You watch somebody as their gut lining lines back up and, and recorrelates into, oh, that's the outside world, this is me. That woman suddenly comes back 18 months later and says, you know what, Doc, I just, just left my husband who's been beating me for 30 years, you know. Or, you know, the woman comes in and says, Doc, I just quit my job and I'm, I just started the company I've been wanting to start for the last 15 years. As we find our microscopic boundaries, we suddenly find our macroscopic boundaries and we start doing the right thing to love ourselves enough to say, you know, enough's enough. I'm here on purpose. I'm going to go live out my purpose. There's not enough time for me to keep working for the man or being in a, a relationship that's not honoring me. Let's take a quick break. I'll be the first to tell you my skin is sensitive and it can turn super sensitive when I least expect it or when it's most inconvenient. And it's been like that since I was a kid. So I try to be careful with the products I use. I was excited to learn that Burt's Bees has a line of sensitive skincare, which has all the clean beauty basics covered. Everything they make is great, from convenient towelettes you can stash in your gym bag, to a face cleanser that leaves skin feeling nourished and refreshed, to their hydrating night cream. But the ultimate go-to might be Burt's Bees Daily Moisturizer. It's a fragrance-free cream, which you'll appreciate if you're sensitive to fragrances too. It uses skin-friendly ingredients like cooling aloe and cotton extract. Whether you use the moisturizer after washing your face in the morning or post-shower, keep it propped up on your bedside table or pack it in your carry-on, it's a soothing self-care thing that you can look forward to using, and your skin will thank you. You can check out Burt's Bees Sensitive Skin Care Collection at burtsbees.com skincare. One of the lead producers of our InGoop Health Summits first told us about the brand Buffy. She was an early fan of their debut product called the Cloud Comforter. It's ridiculously soft and super comfortable, which helps explain why the sleep station we created with Buffy at our last in Goop Health in New York was one of the most popular spots at Summit. What makes Buffy's comforter fluffier than any other comforter? It's covered in incredibly soft, breathable eucalyptus fabric. The unexpected part? The inside fill of the comforter is made from 100% recycled water bottles. Wild, right? Buffy estimates that every comforter keeps about 50 bottles out of landfills and oceans, so it makes for a good night's rest that you can feel good about too. If you want to try out the Cloud Comforter, Buffy offers a free trial for 30 nights. If you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. And you can take $20 off your Buffy Comforter when you visit Buffy.co and enter code GOOP20. That's Buffy.co and enter promo code GOOP20. All right, time to get back to my interview with Dr. Zach Bush. Okay, so there are like four things I want to follow here. So let's start with the, I want to come back to sort of the spiritual purpose and this idea of connection and the collected consciousness and all of that. But first, I want to talk about, and I'm just going to tell you everything I want to talk about because I feel like you can just talk right through it. I want to talk about what's happening on a, geopolitical level in terms of getting the, like, how do we get these things out of our 
system on a macro scale. On a micro scale, how do we protect ourselves and then can and start to express health? And what are the bounds of that? What is possible? Like if you're talking about an autistic child or someone who might have early autoimmunity, like what what's in your experience, what is what is miraculously possible and what is not? And then I want to come back to what this means in a greater context. <laughs> Very good. Let's do the whole thing. Let's do it all. I challenge you. <laughs> I like it. I guess it's easiest for me just to start that whole thing because it's pretty much where I started was thinking of disease. I was a medical doctor. My background is actually in internal medicine doing very intensive care, hospital-based medicine, running ICUs, bone marrow transplant units, the whole nine yards of kind of severe technologic, technocratic, pharmaceuticalized, you know, mission to stem the, the speed of disease. And so that was my background training. I was in academia for actually a total of 17 years in pursuit of all of that. Ended up chief resident at the University of Virginia and then really felt like in all of that education, I hadn't yet felt like I had arrived at a knowledge of how I would actually create health in my patients. Mm-hmm. I had an enormous amount of information in my head. And so I went ahead and went into a subspecialty of endocrinology and metabolism, which is the study of hormones and how they interact with all of the organs and coordinate organ function. So it's just that your liver would respond appropriately to the state of your kidneys, which would respond appropriately to the state of your brain, which is sensing your state to the environment. So it was a very exciting subspecialty for me because I felt like this might put the whole picture together. I don't really want to just go chasing disease and all of this. And so give me the big picture. So I went into endocrinology really passionate about figuring out how the organism works. On the back side of that subspecialty, the second half of it is called metabolism. So we're, we're endocrinology and metabolism as a specialty. And the metabolism part, interestingly, studies these tiny little organisms that live inside of your cells called mitochondria. And when we're taught biology 101 in, in grade school or high school or college, we typically are, those are presented as if they're like part of the human cell and they're a little organelle that live, that's just part of the human. Well, in fact, they are actually just like bacteria. They have their own DNA. Their DNA actually looks a little more like a virus. They have two walls as if a single bacteria swallowed up another bacteria. You can see this, you know, incredible setup for my next career where I would study the microbiome, which was I was studying these little bugs that were living inside our cells and providing it. It happens all of the energy for not just cell maintenance and daily running of it, but actually repair. And so that was where I was doing all my research in and that got me into cancer because I found that if you could give a cancer cell enough information as to what its environment looked like, it would kill itself. Mm. You didn't need an immune system. You didn't need chemotherapy or toxins. The cell would literally commit suicide if it figured out it was a cancer cell. Its first steps towards achieving that had to be healthy mitochondria. And so that was my first realization that human cells and their ability to prevent cancer or heal cancer depend on a non-human organism to do the work. Mm. And that was a really cool like shift in my sense of like, am I really a doctor of humans or do I need to actually shift my attention to becoming more of an ecosystem mindset of human health happens when a human cell is populated with the right micro ecosystem of these three species of mitochondria that live inside our cells, they can replicate inside our cells, they can die off in our cells, they can become damaged in our cells and be swept clean, all kinds of, you know, all this complex variety of life happening within a single little human cell. 
And so that was the beginning of my shift. I was developing chemotherapy with the effort to develop vitamin A compounds from food that could help accelerate the ability of the cell to find out that it was cancerous and, and create this suicide event in the cell. So that was the journey that I was on. 2008 happened, huge collapse of our economy. My university lost our funding that had dated back to 1969 for our clinical research center. My research was all being done through that. One thing led to another, and I suddenly found myself after 17 years of thinking I was going to spend the rest of my life in a university setting with a really tough decision of whether I was going to dive back into the bureaucracy of this slow-moving machine or start out on my own. And through a series of events we don't have time to talk about, the universe kind of slammed all of the doors on me, and I had one path to follow, which was to start to ask the tough questions about, I wonder if the food that would provide the vitamin A that would provide the mitochondria with enough information that it would actually kill cancer cells on its own, I wonder if that food might be important to the human body. Would that be more interesting than pursuing drugs for cancer? And inevitably, I just had to go follow that. It seemed too intriguing because I had been taught no nutrition as a triple board certified doctor and all of this stuff. I had one little class of nutrition first year of medical school, had no memory of what it is. And looking back, I was taught all the totally half-truths at best. I thought calcium primarily came from milk and dairy for the human. No, that's totally not, not accurate at all. Milk and dairy tends to actually pull calcium out of our bone, not add calcium to our bone, all kinds of misperceptions. So, at any rate, long story short, I left and started a nutrition center in rural uh, Virginia in one of the poorest communities there, trying to figure out if I could figure out a, a curriculum that would teach our, our most impoverished, most food desert regions of the country a technique for reversing the pattern of chronic disease that was now very clearly emerging by 2010 and most affecting our African-American and uh, minority populations. I felt like, let's start there, let's find something that works, and then we'll scale so that journey was maybe the beginning of my own personal experience of becoming a cancer cell. I became so isolated so quickly and very depressed very quickly as well. I, mean, I think I was well into depression by the time I was towards the collapse of my academic career, having spent $200,000 of school debt and two kids heading towards college and everything else. It was starting to look like I had created the perfect storm for failure in my life and wasn't providing well for my family and everything else. So I was going through all of that. And then suddenly, totally lonely and isolated, my whole academic family was just thought I had gone off the deep end and become some hippie quack nutrition dude out in <laughs> rural Virginia. And it was just like, yeah, you know, I, I was like, I had just become the black sheep of the black sheep. And I, I, it took me quite a while. It took me two years to really start to find community in this kind of what I would call integrated medicine environment. where, And it turns out it's a huge community. I had no idea that there was huge, you know, 4,000 physician groups around the world that had teamed together to say, we're going to do it differently. Like, that's not told to you in the academic setting. You don't realize there's a massive community out there saying we've got to do it differently. Finally found them, started to get uh, kind of integrated back into that space. But not until we had made one incredible observation is that our patients that were trying to move through cancer and autoimmune disease and other severe diseases were not getting better on health food. And in fact, at least a third of them, I was watching them get way more inflammation, way sicker on kale than on Twinkies. And I kid you not here. And it, at first I just thought they were lying to me. Mm -hmm. And bizarrely, we're kind of trained to think that as doctors. We have this bad patriarchal kind of misogynistic kind of belief system that 
you're smarter than everybody. You've got the best education on the planet. Everybody else is kind of idiots, and so they're going to leave your clinic with only 1% or 10% of what you told them, and they're not going to do what they say, and so don't expect them to be able to change anything. So just say you should eat healthy and you should exercise, and no, they're not going to do either of those, so give them the drug. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of subtle training is built into us. But one cool thing about being lonely is you're willing to accept anybody as family. You're willing to create community around you, and you don't wait for a bunch of fancy, educated doctors to become your community. And so in this rural community, I started having incredibly deep friendships with my patients and other community members, and I started to trust them on levels that I really hadn't been able to trust anybody for a long time, it felt like. And so there came a point two years in where I knew they were working harder than I was, frankly, at eating the right things, and yet they were getting sicker, not better. And that was the turning point where I finally said, what if everything we're doing right now is not working because what we're doing isn't what it used to be? Mm. I was literally having to base all of my nutrition plans on 30, 40-year-old science because we didn't have any new science on what somebody should eat to reverse cancer at the time. And so... We started looking through soil science and crop science and everything else, which, of course, no doctor is ever exposed to. Fascinated to find out that our agricultural scientists had for decades been proving that our the nutrition in our food was absolutely collapsing. Mm -hmm. It looked like a big red tomato. It looks like a big fluffy bunch of kale. But there's no nutrients, no micronutrients left in there. And it was in that journey that we uncovered some molecules that I was found in a white paper that looked like the chemotherapy I used to make. And that was an aha moment that just startled me because I found that molecule, not in a plant, but in the soil. And so in a soil article, I found this molecule, and the aha moment is like 4,000 years, Chinese medicine on forward, we've been looking to our plants for the medicine that would heal us. What if the real medicine is actually in the soil, and we've destroyed that? And it turns out that those carbon molecules that we found are made by bacteria and fungi in the soil, the very bacteria and fungi that are killed by Roundup as we spray it into our dirt. And so this suddenly closed all the loops for me of, oh my gosh. In 1992, we started spraying wheat, our first staple crop. By 96, we were spraying corn, soybean, later alfalfa, and the canola, all of these staple crops. And suddenly 85, 90% of our farmland in America is being sprayed with a chemical that's killing the bacteria and fungi that would make the communication network that would function as the medicine to prevent the disease we could have. So that was, you know, the fast forward through 10 years of work there. But the end point is fascinating that the bacteria and fungi actually are the foundation of human health. And how could it be any other way, really? If you look at the way that biology happens, soil happens, then fresh water through rainfall happens, and then between the two of them, they can foster a seed to become a seedling, seedling needing nurture from the bacteria and fungi in the soil to create the nutrients that would happen in the seedling that would become the corn. That would become the, the staple on your plate or feed, feed the pig that will eventually end up on your bacon plate. All of these steps started to all fit together of like, whoa, we're literally now, through the support of a chemical company that just wants to sell more chemical, because by the way, this is the same company, Monsanto, that was making the Agent Orange that was killing the jungles of Vietnam in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So we've now hired a chemical warfare company to grow our food chain. And should we expect anything but death to come out of that experience? And the conclusion is, I, I can't think of a more obvious endpoint than that. And it may seem overly dark or dismal, but honestly, I, there's no conspiracy theory. It's just like the most obvious 
march of a business trying to find business. They ran out of chemical warfare options. They turned through the same family of molecules, by the way. Organophosphates are both Agent Orange and Roundup. And so they turned their attention to a slightly less toxic version of the same family to say, oh, well, we could spray weeds. That company went on to produce its own cancer data showing that Roundup could cause cancer at a certain dose in the late 80s. Well, I think they did that and published that because they never thought there was any way they were ever going to be able to reach that concentration of chemical in our food or water systems because at the time nobody knew about genetic modification. Mm-hmm. And then just six, eight short years after they, they published that, suddenly they get the capacity to start spraying our food directly with this chemical through genetic modification, which we now call GMO. And we GMO'd that food such that it can now be Roundup ready and handle a direct spraying. So that weed killer became a crop treatment in 1996. Suddenly we were eating that stuff days after spraying with this chemical. And of course then you accelerate it and it's now in the drinking water yeah. and it's now in breast milk and it's everywhere. You have to suddenly realize, wow, we simply built a concept of warfare against the microbiome And the result of that is ultimately going to be human death. Right. And I think people get confused about the GMO debate because they think that it's it's against the idea of a GMO. But it's really primarily that these are Roundup-resistant seeds, so you can douse them with as much Roundup as you want, and there are no implications. It doesn't kill the crop. And so I, I don't think people always make the connection that that's the concerning event. Not so much. I mean, obviously, there's been husbandry and genetic modification in some ways for thousands of thousands years. of years. That's not necessarily the issue. It's the glyphosate-resistant Monsanto now bear, right? Yes. So I just wanted to pause you because I feel like people get wrapped up sort of sometimes in the wrong No, issue. I think that's a super important point. And I really would love if your entire audience knew the simple fact that why do we hate GMO? Why do we need to stop that going to our children? Because it means the food carries chemical with it. GMO means you have now got a food chain that can be chemically sprayed before consumption. Now, I don't want to entirely let off the GMO effect as benign because I'm concerned it's not at all benign. It's much different than, as you mentioned, we've been doing breeding and selective breeding on tomato plants, for example, or the very first one that developed our whole concept of DNA to begin with was the, the experiments on pea plants back in you know, a couple hundred years ago. And so by breeding pea plants, they found they could change the, the variants of the types of peas these plants would grow by you know, mixing and matching. And so that's what I would call natural selection. So that's a natural process of what would be kind of adopted ultimately by the Darwin philosophy of survival of the fittest, right? So the pea plant that can survive drought will survive better when there's a bad season and will pass on those genes and pretty soon you have a drought-tolerant pea. Very much different than that now is the genetic modification of our food. And so now what they do to splice in a new gene that's never existed in that food before, they will take a virus and remove the DNA part of the viral mechanism by which viruses insert their DNA in other organisms. That's how the virus of the flu, for example, causes an infection in you is it goes and inserts its DNA into a single human cell. One virus can do this. And then suddenly the human cell starts making viruses. And so now the human cell becomes the plant that will crank out a bunch of viruses and they go infect other human cells. And now a bunch of human cells in your throat or the back of your nasal sinuses are making virus. And so you become your own viral manufacturing unit. So that's how a virus functions, to clip in its own DNA. 
So to genetically modify your food, they're utilizing the ability of a virus to open up a genome and insert a piece of DNA. They remove the viral DNA and then put in the gene that they want to clip in there. And so they clip in a gene that makes the, the plant tolerant to that Roundup, for example. The thing that's scary is there's some pretty good data out there that's been actually you know, growing for almost 15 years now showing that once that thing inserts, that mechanism isn't gone and they can start inserting and clipping genes in random places throughout the genome, not just in the corn, but throughout any species that would consume that food. And so there's a lot of concern that we may be you know, allowing for genetic swapping, genomic swapping to start happening in organisms that are concerning that are fueling this. So there's good basic science on that. No data or no money has been put into understanding if you eat a, a steak from a cow that was raised on genetically modified corn, is that steak somehow now clipped with a bunch of genes that shouldn't be in there? And now when you eat that, do you have the clipping up mechanism to change your genes? So That sounds like a terrible sci-fi it's, movie. It's a super good sci-fi movie. It's so good. <laughs> And I, I seriously, like, on a daily basis, I feel like I freak myself out more under the microscope than anybody else could ever scare me. Because it's just like, it, you really can't tell a more horrific story of mistakes that were systematically put in place through this very insidious message that we need to feed the world. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the BS of the marketing campaign is, well, we have to do Frankenfoods because there's 7 billion people. But now we're working with all these wonderful farmers through the Midwest to get help them transition from chemical farming to re, not organic but true regenerative uh, soil ma management. And it's an incredible journey, and it's doable. Like we're watching dead, dead soil that's been sprayed with chemicals for 30 years within two seasons just thriving, mm. building topsoil, weeds gone, crop, multi-species crops booming. It's just miraculous. This Mother Earth is so wanting to wake up and live with us, so wanting to co-create the Garden of Eden with us, and yet we just won't give her the opportunity to breathe for a moment. Right. And we're just you know, continuing to build the story that we need to feed the world. But one of these farmers we work with interrupted one of the interviews we were doing last summer for this documentary, and he said, you know, that argument is so ridiculous. He said, right now today... 70% of the planet is fed by a peasant farmer. Mm -hmm. And that was super awesome news because I had the belief system that I, I bought into the belief, America's feeding the world. But really, when you go to the grocery store, the world is feeding us. Yeah. We're pour, pulling our food from South America and Asia and you know all over the place to feed our always consumptive nation because we're not growing our food anymore. Isn't that weird? We literally go, don't grow our food anymore. Certainly as, as individuals, we don't, and families, we don't. At the end of World War II in 1945, we see 45% of the American food chain being grown in Victory Gardens. The Victory Gardens were actually a, a marketing campaign by our government and by the, the British for all the population to start growing food because we couldn't feed the troops. We couldn't, there was mass starvation happening. And you remember we had just come out of the Dust Bowl. We had soup kitchens throughout the country before the war started and then the war starts and now we've got troops all over the world and we're trying to create you know, international movement of food and resources. Chicken was never really eaten in this country until after World War II because part of the, the commercial campaign was save your chickens for the troops. And so everybody started, you know, sending chicken solely to the troops because they needed the protein was the message. 
And this created the perception in the consumers that chickens were somehow very special food. <laughs> and so suddenly World War II gets over and we suddenly think chicken is the best thing. And you just see chicken consumption go through the roof and you see everybody stop growing the backyard garden. So we go from 45% of our food growing in the backyard garden to less than a tenth of 1% in the United States now grown in our gardens. And so we outsourced it to big farming all over the world. And then we took our big farmers and taught them not to grow tomatoes, herbs, spices, and everything else we need in our kitchen, and instead just grow corn, soybean, and maybe some canola. Yeah. Sugar beets are okay too. <laughs> and so we went down to five crops basically in a nation that used to grow everything. One of the scary things about being on farms right now is that your typical farmer doesn't know how to grow anything but corn and soybean, and they certainly don't know how to take care of pigs, cattle, or livestock because they're either a corn farmer or they're a big cattle producer. We've so subspecialized our farmers now where a single piece of land can't be diversified easily without some really good education. And so it's just a real... Mm -hmm. mimic in some ways of our pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, I was going to say, or medical communication. Big pharma, pharma, same thing. Our doctors have become so subspecialized. I would include myself in this. I went through three subspecialties trying to find something that would help humans. Finally found that in hospice and palliative care, by the way. I think that's one intact specialty other than the over-dependence on opiates. And we can, that's not, that's for a different story. But it is fascinating that the best work I ever done as a doctor was sitting by a bedside of a dying patient. And that has happened again and again. It's where I feel most human. It's where I feel most in service without doing harm. It's where I feel most inspired by what I do. The second most inspiring thing beyond that death transformation is the moment of birth. And so I love watching babies being born, and I love watching people pass to the other side of the veil. And the stories that come from both those sides are transformational. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you never meet a woman that just had a child that doesn't, is not just completely changed forever. She can never go back to being the woman she was just a few days before. Same thing I would say when you actually really are close to somebody and you sit and hold their hand through the death process and you don't let go of that hand, you're forever changed. You will never fear death in the same way in that transit as long as you can see with eyes wide open that that person's not dying right now. That person is releasing from this damaged, depleted body into some race course, into energetic space that we can not wrap our frail human brains around. And they have this joy in them. They have this spark in their eye that you haven't seen in decades. They have this sense of security. They, they lose their sense of fear. They become these powerful beings in that last couple seconds. And that is really optimistic for me because as a human species right now, we've got two directions. We've got the choice to start to come to terms with the fact that as consumers, we could become regenerative. We could be regenerative in our philosophy of the apparel we wear. To what you guys do so well here at Goop is what are you putting on your skin? Mm-hmm. What are you putting in, on your plate? I think one thing we miss often is who are you actually hanging out with? Is that community the epigenetic you know, program you really want on you? Would you want your kids to make this your, their community? You know, are you being inspired by the people that you're eating dinner with? Or are you eating dinner alone? Icaria, Greece, had this wonderful couple come over. It's one of the blue zones on Earth where everybody seems to live over 100 years old. 
and they cooked this incredible Greek meal for us, and, and it was this just transformational experience just in the way in which the woman who was preparing this described onions, for example. I mean, it was like a 15-minute discourse on an onion and how it should look when you pull it out of the ground, how it should feel when you squeeze it, the way it should smell, the way it should cut, the way that it should simmer in a pan, the way it should touch your tongue, the way it should change the... I mean, it was unbelievably beautiful. And I was transformed by the experience of rethinking my spiritual experience of food. And then her husband steps in and says, and, you know, after an hour and a half of this discourse on food, he says, but all of us know in Icaria de Greece that it's not the food, but it's who you eat it with. Mm-hmm. And we never ask each other, what did you eat for dinner last night? We ask, who did you eat dinner with last night? So there's something to all of this that in the end, I find out as a physician and cancer research and everything else that the whole secret to life itself is diversity in the microbiome and our, our relationship and fellowship with that diverse ecosystem of other species. And in the same way, we don't find social and mental health until we find diversity and connection at that macro level. And so I think we really need to take a lesson in that. You know, Politically right now, I think you asked a bit ago about the political situation we now face. The political situation is simply a symptom of what's happening at the microscopic level. We are paranoid. We are lonely. We feel like we are super vulnerable right now, and we don't even know why. And so we're reacting stupidly. Here we're building, talking about building billion-dollar walls between us and Mexico when our real threat is that we just sold 85%, 90% of our entire food production system to a German company. Mm-hmm. That's a ludicrous decision from a homeland security standpoint. We no longer own our own food chain. That's crazy talk. I mean, if you had tried to do that in the 1950s, in that post-World War II era when you know, the New Deal was afoot and and we, we were so high on our capacity as a nation to be self-independent again and to rebuild our defenses and all that. If you had said we're going to let Germany grow, you know, the vast majority of our food and own that, look how, I, I mean, it's almost unfathomable that we're this myopic politically right now, that we would see what is not dangerous to us as our threat and completely fail to see where security really lies, which is ultimately in our soil and in our in our system of food production. There's a layer deeper than on if we go on this issue of homeland security and food. And again, I want to bring it to your attention because you guys as consumers can change this very quick. But we have this situation of the collapse of the family farm. We have family farms that have been running for five, ten generations in this country that have gone out of business in mass over the last 20 years. That would be bad enough in and of itself except it gets a lot worse because the main groups that are buying up that farmland as it goes bankrupt tend to be international conglomerates, these international financial groups that are buying up. So we've got from Western Europe to Russia to China owning our farmland now. And then Germany now with Bayer owns all of our seed. And so we've got our seed and our land being owned by foreign entities just in the last 20 years. And so this is fascinating to me. I think there's no question the United States empire is collapsing. We've lost our leadership around the globe on so many levels. The only reason I think that we're really in the stead we are right now is because we march around with an ironclad fist with our military and, you know, try to maintain this military clout that, you know, outramps everybody else. And so it's just that big stick that's keeping everybody kind of paying attention to us. 
but from an economic standpoint, we're, be- we're fast becoming you know, a smaller player in the global economy. I've been a little bit shocked on the, sh- the fear that we're still able to distill in other countries through our political abusiveness. I- I'm ready for them to stand up in the next couple of years and be like, you know what, U.S., you're just the bully in the playground. Mm-hmm. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> we're all together. You're alone. You've, you're more leveraged in debt than any other country on the planet. You owe us the money back. Pay up. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to take your abusiveness anymore. That could happen in a day on the political thing, and then we're done as an as an empire, and then we're going to cl- see a huge collapse and retraction of our economy. That could only really be good for us in the end, is the bully does need to be checked and find itself again, mm-hmm. so that bully can actually not be this scared, you know, insecure human being flailing around, and actually find themselves and become their purpose, because they too are a soul that's ancient, waiting to find its purpose. Our nation has a soul. Our nation was founded on profound principles of, you know, equality, profound principles that, of course, from the beginning were so far beyond the very practice of lifestyle in this country built on slavery so much and built by, you know, taking land from Mexico and taking land from the Native American people and their tribes. The ethos was there, though, Mm -hmm. and the ethos of this nation, I really believe, is straining to come back out. And in a bizarre way, I think technology could empower that ethos. And we could build a technological system by which there is a true democratic and true co-creative capitalism that's not just about sucking out the resources for a few. And is really about creating opportunity for the masses. Let's take a quick break. Friends who are regulars at the European Wax Center appreciate things like their seamless booking and checkout process or how they're conveniently located throughout major cities. But as a brand, they're also starting some important conversations for women, and frankly, for men too. Last April, the European Wax Center launched a campaign called Axe the Pink Tax, which they've reprised this month. The campaign empowers shoppers to use their purchasing power for good, and it explores a concept called the Pink Tax, which is the extra amount that the average woman may be charged daily for basic goods and services. There have been a few different groups that have looked at gender-based pricing differences. It's been estimated that the average woman may be charged more than $1,000 every year simply on the account of being a woman and buying products and services targeted at women, which is of course arbitrary. And it's maddening that this could be the case without us knowing. At Goop, we believe that we deserve a lot more transparency than that and the European Wax Center gets this too. If you want to learn more and get involved in the conversation they're starting, head to axthepinktax.com. All right, time to get back to my interview with Dr. Zach Bush. So as individuals, what can we do? Like what, how can we heal? How can we protect ourselves? What can we heal from? Super optimistic in the end. And so I'm glad we can end on an optimistic note because I... I tend to leave it, everybody either hanging on a cliff or maybe already dropped off the cliff. So let's let's, <laughs> let's climb back up and find some green land to, to stand on here. So what do we do now? So 
from a food standpoint, it's quite simple. We can reconnect consumers to farmers. And I actually just launched a nonprofit to do exactly this. And our documentary series is called Farmer's Footprint, if you're interested. These 20-minute segments that are showing you the story of the farmers and how simple it is to reconnect to them. Because the farmers want a simple solution, which is they just want to grow good food and keep the farm. They are the least greedy group of people I've ever been around, and they are also the most ingenious group of people I've ever been around. They are problem solvers to the nth degree. And so just with a tiny bit of support, a tiny bit of reassurance that, you know what, the consumer is willing to support you and your 1,000 acres to become a regenerative you know, source for the future of food for the, the country. And if it takes you a few years to do that, that is a good investment for us as consumers. And so it's very exciting to see the outpouring, and it's coming from not just consumers, but it's coming from, you know, things like Patagonia and these giant corporations, these multibillion-dollar, you know, megatrons in in the economy that are saying, you know, this is exactly what we need to do. Is I don't care if you're a consumer or a corporation, if you're not behind regenerative agriculture, you're for the very rapid demise of our species. And so it's fascinating. I'm going to be speaking uh, shortly here on Climate Day with. Uh, Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia, he's coming out of kind of his his retirement at age 80 here to speak on climate today to explain why Patagonia is refocusing its mission statement as an apparel company on regenerative agriculture. Mm. And so that is thought leadership in my mind. You You will not find a greater mind out there in the corporate world saying, you know, taking critical look at their supply chain. How are we contributing? And so corporations down to the household how much plastic is coming in your house right now in the form of cucumbers that are individually wrapped in plastic and bizarre things that we've done over the last few years in these <laughs> it's chains? Really bizarre. It's totally weird. Like, why did somebody think we needed to shrink wrap a cucumber? Like, it's got a skin on it. Nonetheless, we do these things. And so as a consumer, you could take a look at that microscopic level, and I think Goop does a great job of this, is just simply asking those simple questions of like, what are you putting in your body? What are you bringing into your home? Is that what you want there? So stepwise process of taking a, a critical look at what you're doing, how that contributes to a bigger thing, and then start working on communication. It, this starts simply by shopping organic. Organic, as it's become this kind of machine of the USDA, and it's now just a a certificate that requires no care of your soil. There's no maintenance of soil re uh, requirements for having an organic farm, nor does it require any nutrient uh, input into your crops to be an organic farm. You just have to not spray a few things, but you don't need to actually create nutrient-dense food, and you don't have to take care of your soil. And as we do these soil tests across the country with our colleagues now, we find that organic farms are, are largely no better and sometimes much worse than the f soil quality on chemical farms. So why then are we going to eat organic if it's not working well? Because it's it's still pushing the industry towards a non-chemical-based system, which is encouraging scalable resources and scalability of research and development for a non-chemical approach. Coming quickly, by cooperation of the Rodale Institute and Patagonia is actually a new cert certification called Regenerative Organic. And... That's exciting as a consumer to be able to be equipped with that to say, okay, these are not just organic because a lot of our organic producers are regenerative, but they don't get to tell the consumer that. Right. And so a crappy organic farm that's not taking care of its soil at all is going to sell for exactly the same price tag on the, on the shelf and you're not going to know the difference from somebody who's doing a phenomenal biodynamic regenerative process that's loving every single thing. I've met farmers that are literally doing Reiki therapy on their milk before they put it in a jug. Like, I mean, it's a little out of control how good these farms can get sometimes. <laughs> 
And so I, th- there's milk. one there's one dairy farm in the Midwest that's doing Reiki on all their cows. And by the end of the day, I was like, I think maybe my next lifetime, I just need to be a cow on this farm. Like <laughs> if I do enough good things, maybe I could be a cow here. It's, it's phenomenally well cared for. And you contrast that, that they're selling their gallons of milk for the same as any other organic milk on the shelf, and it's just not fair to the farmer. So I hope this moves in the right thing. But the interesting thing is none of the farmers want more regulation. None of them want more certification. So our group at Farmers Footprint has been working with them, and it looks like the, the move that we want to make is actually certify not the food, but certify the education or be able to have a badge of education for the farmer themselves mm. to say this farmer has gone above and beyond, has re-educated themselves on how to be cooperative, co-creative manager of their property, and they're creating food. Do you want to be part of that? Mm-hmm. This is somebody who's self-motivated to go beyond the paradigm of some government saying this is what an organic food checklist of 30 points looks like to say, I'm going to be at one with my property. I'm going to see life regenerate here. And they are beautiful, these farms. I mean, the amount of birds that will come back to a farm in a single year of regenerative soil is unbelievable. You have 16, 20 species that haven't been seen in a generation suddenly back on the farm again. Mother Nature is so forgiving. And this is the silver lining of the story for me is that her grace is much greater than our stupidity. The reality is, you know, if down the molecular level now, as we dive back down into the soil and the microbiome, is what we discovered in 2012 was this family of carbon molecules. And those carbon molecules were planted in our soils in the fossil layer of our soils from 60 million years ago. And bizarrely, the way we found the potency of these molecules was testing it against Roundup to find out that these molecules planted by a microbiome that doesn't exist anymore. 60 million years ago, we had the extinction of the dinosaurs and our topsoil died. And we had to rebuild slowly a microbiome that's never been equivalent to, to that era. So we have this ancient intelligence from Mother Earth and her soils that would come and plant an antidote to the very destruction of her soils that we do today. That's... We don't deserve that. I don't understand that level of grace. We've wiped out 40% of biology on Earth in just 50 years. We have engineered, we're almost halfway done with the sixth great extinction on the planet. And yet, that Mother Earth keeps reaching out saying, are you sure you don't want to keep playing? Because mm. we could have some fun together. We could create something beautiful together. And so eat organic. Look for your CSAs locally. Eat from your CSAs. Know your farmer. Get out to the CSAs. Help them pick help harvest, expose your children to those farms so those children might have in the back of their mind, you know what, it's kind of badass to be a farmer. We, our, our film series, Farmer's Footprint, is showing just how freaking heroic not only their efforts are, but their spirit is. Dawn is the woman who's in, in, the first in our movie. And the fact that we bump into this family and this becomes our first movie, and her name is Dawn, I hope is really symbolic of our future. I hope we have a dawning of awareness through the nurture of women on these farms that has been there and suppressed by this masculine archetype of control, 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 and more chemicals, more tools, more technology. And yet the women have consistently been saying there's got to be a better way. And the amount of disease these women have had to, to manage between their kids with attention deficit and autism and cancers and everything else, and themselves with cancers. We have to keep in mind that these farmers really are on the front line of this toxicity and they have the highest cancer rates in many parts of the the country as to be in the whole developed world. The last 90 miles of the Mississippi River, which collects some 85% of our Roundup spraying in the country, is Cancer Alley. It's the highest rates of cancer in the entire world are in the last 90 miles between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. 
And so we are literally building these cesspools of carcinogen and making our farmers live in this. They're breathing it. They're, it's raining on it. It's, it's the full-on exposure. So many of these farmers are on their second, third cancers, and their children are sick, and they're up at 4 a.m. every day to try to help the few cows on the farm that are so sick because they're eating the same crap and are sick and everything is just degenerating. And yet Dawn is there saying, that's where we were three years ago. Our cows were literally dying in the fields. We were sick. Our kids are sick. Kids are in and out of the hospital. And now, if you fast forward just a year or two without spraying, a year or two of cooperation with the soil, their daughter has now decided to rejoin the farm. She started her own farm, uh, farm-to-table meat delivery system. Brilliant, brilliant experience of this young 19, 20-year-old girl saying, this is what I'm going to do with my future. I'm going to carry on my fifth-generation family farm, and I'm going to do it right. And so uh, I'm constantly inspired by these farmers. And you as consumers, the closer you get to those farmers, the more you're going to support a regenerative future for us. So eat organic, then eat regenerative organic. Eat as close to home as possible. We've developed supplement lines for adding to the food. So if you want to go after something like that, the supplement line is called Restore. It's a liquid supplement that you you take orally or add to your food or water before consuming it. That's got those carbon molecules from 60 million years ago that kind of act as that antidote to much of the toxicity of our food chain. They improve nutrient delivery uh, through the gut intestine by reversing uh, the, the protein misfolding and everything else. And so you've got this real, you know, great crutch that mother earth has placed a big band-aid on the gut of an american system that's failing and so we've got a a gut band-aid here but as a company we're trying to put ourselves out of business as fast as possible by (laughs) if we just get these nutrients back in and we're trying to put ourselves out of business with this mission of the realization that we can't create enough supplement from 60 million year old dirt to heal the planet we need the planet to look at our science and if take it or leave it on the supplement, but for God's sakes, help us find that solution, which is fix the soil so that in 30 years, not only is there healthy plants, there's a few healthy humans left to carry on the species. Thanks for joining my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush today. I think it was one of my most memorable to date and what he's talking about has incredible importance for how we live in the days coming forward. I also think that his work on regenerative agriculture and the movement that's coalescing around him and others is incredibly promising for what it means for us here in America and across the globe. You can learn more about his work at zachbushmd.com. That's Z-A-C-H bushmd.com. And you can watch his documentary, Farmer's Footprint, online at farmersfootprint.us. And now I'm going to turn it over to GP. She's going to be answering a question from one of you guys. How do you feel about Botox? Do you do it yourself? If not, what is your alternative? That's from Brittany. Brittany, I, I don't do it to myself. I mean, I would not trust myself with a, with a Botox needle. I, this is totally without judgment. I don't feel that great about Botox. I've tried it a couple of times. And I, for me, aesthetically, I don't think it looks good on me. I don't know enough about the research behind it to say whether it's good or not. It is botulism that we're putting in our muscles. So I think you just have to weigh the pros and cons if you're going to do it. But I 
my philosophy is do whatever makes you feel good. No judgment anywhere. If you want a little drop of Botox, get rid of those deep furrowed brows, you know, whatever works. You do you. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast. We hope you'll be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. To keep up, tap subscribe. And please let us know what you think. You can rate, review, or hit us up on social. For more, just head to goop.com slash the podcast 